so good to see you all today. Uh, just real quickly, I need to acknowledge uh, John and Sid Lawton are celebrating their one-year anniversary today. Well, pretty, pretty awesome the way the Lord uh, just brings people together, enables us to move forward. Just fantastic. Uh, I, I know that, uh, at least in the past, People have been very concerned about heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and just all the time we used to hear about heart health and cardio health. And now most of the conversation, like, I don't know, 99.9% is dominated by COVID-19. And I don't want to make light of that because it's a deal. I've had family members, have family members uh, that have it. We have, have had people in the church who have it. In fact, uh, what I want to do right now on the front end, as I mention this, is pray for Zeke Jacks. Uh, he has been admitted to the hospital. He's intubated. This is serious. So I would encourage you to pray for him in particular, not just this morning, but continually. So we're going to do that right now. Uh, Father, we, we do pray you'd watch over Zeke. We, Lord, pray that uh, you would see fit to improve his health, get him off that ventilator, and back out of the hospital so he can serve you as best he can, as well as he can, as long as he can. Lord, we don't really know what else to ask. We know that you're sovereign, but you also give us the, the, the privilege of asking for whatever we want. And we want him well. So, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you would heal his body. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We do get very concerned about COVID, obviously. So I, I, I kind of looked up some statistics, and I want to ask you a question. What do you think? Do you think more people pass from COVID-19 or from issues related to cardiovascular health. What do you think? Still cardiovascular health. That's from the statistics that I've seen. And so I, I, I know sometimes we want to reduce everything to one thing so that we can feel safe, but the reality is there's a whole lot of things uh, for, for which we need to be concerned. Cardiovascular health is still one of them. And this is the time of the year when everybody in the past, and I think still, needs to be concerned about, well, you know, Thanksgiving's over, Christmas is over, time to move forward, and, uh, and sometimes it's really hard to move forward. Peggy, I've just got to, i got to call you out on this, because uh, she left like a big old jar of these, you know, candy-covered pretzels. It's like, I was supposed to start my diet yesterday, and you caused me to stumble. I mean, I, you know, we can't show her face right now, but it's like, it's bad, you know, thank you. Uh, but, you know, so I'm really, I'm trying to move forward, and, and now she made me rethink my life. Uh, so I might not start the diet until January 1st. But that's just a routine for some of us, and I'm not saying that's a great routine. Probably we should never actually diet, just eat right and exercise all the time. But, frankly, it's time for me to start exercising again like I once did and watching what I eat again because uh, cardio health, it's important, not just lifting weights, and not just losing weight, but exercising. Because here's what we know about cardio health. If, if you want a healthy heart, what do you do? Here's what you do. You sit on your couch and give it lots of rest, and you, and you, you lay in bed and watch TV all day, and the more you rest your heart, the healthier it is. Right? No. Yeah. Oh, no. No. Peggy, stop clapping. Uh, no, that's not how it works. What you have to do is you have to stress your heart. Just, you know, for periods at a time, you exercise and you, and you work. And for those, those of us who have more sedentary jobs, 
whether we're on the phone or just in front of the computer and all the rest, we have to be very intentional, at least, you know, for a few minutes a day. Some people say maybe 30 minutes, three times a week. Not that bad. Some of us, may we go for it a little bit longer. But we've got to intentionally stress our hearts, exercise it, work it out, and then, you know, let it relax. And that's why some of us have these little devices that tell us our calories burned and the number of steps that we have and and our heart rates and pulse rates because we've got to be intentional about this. Now, my grandparents, they were not intentional about it. They had this thing, which is crazy. It's called manual labor. And, uh, they, you know, they worked on a farm and a ranch and they actually, you know, they didn't keep track of their push-ups or sit-ups or pull-ups or steps or anything. They just worked. And so they didn't worry about all that stuff. But more and more, we have to worry about that because we're kind of connected and we're sedentary and all the rest. The reason I bring this up is just to say if that's true of the physical organ, that it needs to be stressed on occasion, but it's also true of the spiritual organ of your spiritual heart health. And, and so God has given us these things in our lives that are essentially little treadmills, okay, or ellipticals, if you will, or little stationary bikes, and they're not produced by Peloton or, you know, iFit or Nautilus or any of this stuff that... He's given us these things that help us with regards to our spiritual health. And you know what that is? It's these little things that that keep us strong, that stress us out. It's called other people. And so if you have people around you in your life that are a little bit difficult, that require patience, that are kind of cranky, or uh, they don't say to you all the time, thy will be done. And they require that you, on at least occasion, submit to them and to their agenda and their desires. If you have people that require uh, a little extra love and a little extra attention, well, then you should thank God for them. Because they're actually good for you. And if you don't have any of these cranky, high-maintenance people around you to help you with regards to your spiritual fitness... Call the church office. We keep a list. Of... No, I'm just kidding. No. Oh, I'm, I'm kidding, y'all. I'm kidding. Okay. No, no. I'm, I'm... Mark, stop laughing. Uh, and it's not Peggy because I really do love you a lot. Uh, no, seriously. It's a good thing to have people around. It really, really is. I was visiting with Alan about this a little bit earlier. Um, I guess it was just, just last week about how the social undistance has really not been good. It's not been good for me uh, for two reasons. One, I'm an extrovert, and that doesn't mean I have to be the center of attention, although I kind of am in the middle of the stage on Sundays. But I, I really get energy from being around other people. And so it used to be that I would even go to, to Starbucks or something just to, just to be around people, even if I'm not talking to anybody, just to have them around. It gives me, it gives me energy. But the social distance has kind of removed that from me on a regular basis. And I'm doing that for my parents, I mean, of you, and for my wife and, and all the rest. And it's really not good for the church probably right now for me to, to, to die from COVID. And, and that's happened some, for some churches. And so I, I am conscious and I'm aware of all this. But it's also been not really good, the social and distance, because here's what I've noticed. The less I'm around people, and, and this may be you too, and I'm not picking on you any more than I'm picking on me, but it just might be true for you as it's true for me, that the less we're around people, the more prone we are to get a little nasal gazing-ish, you know, where we become a little bit more self-absorbed and we cocoon in our little house and cocoon in our in our car and can cocoon behind our little, you know, iPhone, 
which I had the 6 until the 12 because my family just couldn't stand it. They felt so guilty that they all had 12s and I had a 6. So anyways, that, that's taken care of. But if you're kind of like in a little cocoon, it's not healthy. And, and some of us, we, we don't exactly necessarily know what to do with it. All I'm saying is that while we pay attention to COVID, as we should, and I'm not in a hurry for anyone to get this, we also need to pay attention not just to our cardio health physically, but we need to be paying attention to our heart health too. And so as we're sort of re-upping for 2021, I want to encourage you to appropriately be thinking about what can you do and what can I do with regards to our spiritual heart health. And let me, let me just kind of start out with a question. Why do you think that this is such a big deal? Why is this really so important? Why should we commit ourselves to renewing spiritually healthy hearts in 2021? Well, here's the answer in a nutshell. Our hearts have the capacity to either reveal God or to conceal God. Eugene Peterson translates 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 this way. And, in, and the message is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. Uh, and, and I don't recommend the message for Bible study per se, but it is Bono's favorite translation, so that counts for something. Uh, but here's, here's the way he translates it, and it is helpful. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. Loving people in my life is a, a primary expression of my love for God. And unfortunately, sometimes around churches, it's kind of weird. People will get a reputation for being spiritually mature, spiritual giants, and all the rest. And, you know, they don't really love people. They might be really smart or well-positioned or something like that. But biblically speaking, on, in, in, on the whole in the Bible, and with Jesus in particular, a person's spiritual condition comes down to their love for God. And the love for God is primarily measured in terms of their ability to love their neighbors as themselves, to love their neighbor and to love their neighbor in such a way as to make the invisible God visible. And James really hammers it home. We're going to be looking primarily at 1 John chapters 2 and, and 3. John hammers it home like this. He says, whoever loves his brother lives in the light. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And then he gets real concrete with this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, and here the idea of pity is uh, not just an emotional response, but it's an action that's taken in, in response to someone else's need. If anyone sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love with words or tongue. Uh, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Uh, love God. Okay, it's that simple. And then you love people as an act of the love of God. And we've got to be real careful here because sometimes we allow the popular culture to redefine love when Jesus is the one who defined it. And so when we love people, that doesn't mean that we always make them feel comfortable, although hospitality is a big part of love. Sometimes love confronts. Sometimes love challenges. Sometimes uh, love rebukes. Sometimes love inspires. But always, always, always a person's uh, heart, if it's shaped by God is going to love people in practical ways. It's going to work itself out in uh, sacrifice for other people. And what's also interesting or worth noting is that a believer's 
condition uh, is going to be measured. Not just exercised by other people, but it's going to be measured by one's love for other people because other people are not just, you know, the spiritual treadmill for you or the spiritual, you know, elliptical, but it's almost like the heart monitor. It's how you can tell how you're really doing. What is the actual condition of your of your heart? The Bible tells us this. Everyone who loves, let me just kind of back up because I want to drive this home and you might be taking notes. So how I respond to people in my life is the number one indicator of the condition of my heart. Here's what the Bible tells us. Here's how it's put in 1 John. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, most people understand that there's a connection. You don't even have to believe, be a believer. You may have never read First John before, but you know there's a connection between how people love one another and how people actually love God. You probably have heard the, the old story about the woman who was driving on the highway a little bit too fast, but then somebody else cut her off, and then she got really angry, and she got on that person's tail and was swerving and yelling and screaming and giving a particular hand gesture that communicates a lack of affection. And then there was this highway patrolman that pulled behind her, stopped her, turned on the light, stopped her, pulled her over, took her out of the vehicle, put her in handcuffs, took her to jail. The next day, the highway patrolman had to come by and apologize. I said, ma'am, I'm really, really sorry. It was, it was my mistake. It's just that I saw the Christian fish on the back of your car and the bumper sticker that says, Jesus heals broken lives, and then the license plate cover that said, this car is prayer conditioned. And I just assumed that you had stolen the car. Um, we, we know that there's going to be a connection. And when the connection is not strong or when the connection undermines what it is that we testify, people take our actions as stronger than our words, which actually is right. I tell people this. I've taught my kids this, and you should teach your kids this and your grandkids this, that actions speak louder than words. And so the actions that we take do communicate our love for God or lack thereof, and it makes the invisible God visible to people or conceals God. I was uh, visiting a little bit earlier this week with David Morrison, Bill Morris, David Morrison, and uh, Beth Morris are the children of uh, Martha Morris and, and Bill's the husband. And Martha, by the way, for those of you who don't know, she passed away not too long ago, and we're also going to be having a service coming up very soon, a week from Saturday, that's the 9th at 10.30 in the Historic Sanctuary. The limitation is 50 people in there. It's mask only per the family's request. You can sign up online. The family's already reserved their places, so don't worry about that. There's going to be overflow in here. We're also going to simulcast if you're not, for people who are in here. And also we're going to be doing the simulcasting for people at home. So we'll be broadcasting live if you're not able to come. So just be aware of that. But I was talking to them about Martha. And one of the things that stuck out in their minds was how Martha took people in. Uh, the practical hospitality. Not just have people over for a little bit, but to actually have them come over and live with them for a season. And she would take people in. And I won't give you all the specifics because I don't know if these particular people are living in the community. But there was one lady in particular who was hurting, and I won't give you the, the whole story, but just needed a place of protection, a, sa- a place of safety, a place of warmth. Took her in. Other people didn't even know. Took in other people, had, you know, had people who were missionaries staying in the house, that kind of radical hospitality. And as I was sitting there talking with the family, it, it was very plain to me that, that Beth and, and, and David were marked by that kind of generosity. We have the power in the way in which we deal with other people, including strangers, to reveal 
the God who is unseen, or we have the power to conceal him. Uh, And it all comes down to the way that we love authentically or don't love at all. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. John writes, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Notice there's a little bit of tension here. No one has ever seen God. and just I just love the complete, I don't know, openness. No one's ever seen God. You haven't seen God, I haven't seen God. But he goes on and he emphasizes the in us, it's, it's a phrase that's repeated two times. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I think the reason John repeats that phrase, in us, a couple of times is because he's letting us know ultimately people don't see Jesus in a, a great worship service. Although, you know, hopefully that happens on occasion. It would help if we had some smoke machines and turned up the music louder. So I don't know what people are thinking. Or maybe, you know, people see God in a lightning bolt or a mountain. It's probably possible. Or a burning bush. That'd be really cool. But the emphasis here is, here's how it happens. This is what happens. People see God in us. You're the bolt. You're the mountainside. You're the burning bush. You are, in, in and of yourself, the worship service because the way in which you live your life communicates how much you value God or how much it is that you are actually beholding the love of the Lord for you. So we have to think about the implications of all of this. Jesus puts it like this a little bit differently. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. By living the love that I've shown you, Jesus says, you're going to turn around and you're going to show the people that you belong to me. You're going to make me and your relationship with me visible. There are some implications for this, and that is, while doctrine is important, and I'm not minimizing that, because doctrine helps refine or shape or help us keep committed to that love. And while I don't want to minimize passion and zeal, because your passion is important to help you through those times of difficulty or times of crisis to remain faithful. And, and, and while it's fine if you have a great bumper sticker and all the rest, but if your driving undermines that, that's not so good. But when it comes right down to it, the most important thing is that you you love. Because it's in you that the invisible God is made visible. So the question that we're going to spend some time with this morning, and this is just so simple, it really is. It's a very simple message, but I want you to be taking this seriously and thinking these things through. Is okay, so if we do make God visible, how do we love so as to make God visible? And I'm going to make three very simple observations here out of 1 John. And the first is this. We've got to see the love of God for ourselves. I want you to notice how chapter 3 begins. See what love the Father has given us. Or in some translations, behold, you know, the, the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. John begins where I think the gospel always begins, where the gospel has to begin. You have to see this. You have to receive this. You need to behold the love that the Father has for you. And the question is, are you beholding it? Do you you see this? Because you cannot communicate to others what it is that you've not received. You can't share what you haven't, haven't gotten. And it's not entirely natural to understand or to perceive the vast, pure, immeasurable love of God for you. 
Uh, Brennan Manning, who's a rather famous Christian author, I've never read anything by him that I didn't like, he puts it like this. God has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. He is the only God people have ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners. But the Father Jesus loves all no matter what they do. But, of course, this is almost too incredible for us to accept. It's almost too incredible for us to accept. It's almost like we're hardwired to not accept this. Because when it comes to love God, a lot of people say, yeah, 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 God loves me and all the rest. And then we try very hard to demonstrate that we're acceptable to this God who loves us. And in the process, in trying to demonstrate how acceptable we are to this God who loves us, we become hard and cold in our hearts. Almost like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, you know, the older brother who says, I'm just going to stay home and I'm going to demonstrate how good I am to my father. And in the process of dutifully doing what the father wants him to do, proving that he's better than the other son, doesn't need as much love, he loses sight of the unconditional, immeasurable, pure love of God. So the, and we, that's high performing. There are a lot of people in this place, like in a lot of religious places, who are high performers. Most of you, you're probably in comparison to some people, pretty good people, okay, in comparison to other people. And uh, maybe you've lived a pretty good life for most of your life, or at least, you know, the last few years or something. You know what happens? We lose sight of the love of God because we don't think that we need the grace as much as the person who's next to us. It's like the older brother. And the question, especially around places of worship, needs to be, do you see, do you see the love that God has lavished on you? Do you understand this? Because we're not prone to see it. It's, it's like John knows we just forget to look or we fail to recognize. So do you understand the immeasurable love that God has for you? Or do you kind of think that maybe God doesn't love you as much as, I don't know, you would love your children or your grandchildren. Do you really think that God doesn't love you as much as Casey and Anya love Adelaide? I came across something that was, uh, it was recorded in a book by James Dobson, When God Doesn't Make Sense. And it's not something that he wrote, it's a letter that he received and he kept and I want to read this to you. It's a letter from a dad to a daughter, and it, I don't know, it just really hit me. And, and hopefully it hits you too in a similar way. My dear Bristol, before you were born, I prayed for you in my heart. I knew you would be a little angel, and so you were. When you were born on my birthday, April 7, it was evident that you were a special gift from the Lord. But how profound a gift you turned out to be. More than the gurgles and rosy cheeks, more than the firstborn of my flesh, a joy unspeakable. You showed me God's love more than anything else in all creation. Bristol, you taught me how to love. I certainly loved you when you were cuddly and cute, when you jabbered your first words. I loved you when the searing pain of realization took hold that something was wrong, that maybe you weren't developing as quickly as your peers And even when we understand it was more serious than that, I loved you when we went from hospital to clinic to doctor looking for a medical diagnosis that would bring us some hope. And, of course, we always prayed for you. We prayed and prayed. I loved you when you moaned and cried. Your mom and I and your sisters would drive for hours late at night to help you fall asleep. I loved you when you were confused, when with tears in your eyes you would bite your fingers or your lip by accident. I loved you when your eyes crossed and when you went blind. I 
most certainly loved you when you could no longer speak, but how profoundly I missed your voice. I loved you when scoliosis began to wrench your body like a pretzel and when we put a tube in your stomach so you could eat. We fed you one spoonful at a time, even up to two hours per meal. I managed to love you when your contorted limbs made changing ten years of diapers difficult. Bristol, I even loved you when you could not say the one thing in my life that I longed to hear back, Daddy, I love you. Bristol, I loved you when I was close to God and when he seemed far away, when I was full of faith and when I was angry at him. And the reason I loved you, Bristol, in spite of these difficulties, is that God put this love in my heart. This is the wondrous nature of God's love. He loves us when we are blind or deaf or twisted in body or in spirit. God loves us even when we can't tell him that we love him back. My dear Bristol, now you are free. I look forward to the day when, according to God's promise, we will be joined together, completely whole and full of joy. I am so happy that you have your crown first. We will follow you someday in his time. Before you were born, I prayed for you. In my heart, I knew you would be a little angel. And so you were, love daddy. Now, I know, like I said, we've got some high performers in this room, some really good people. But do you know God loves you like that? I was, uh, you know, thinking about the baby dedication. I have to tell you, Bristol reminds me of Shelby because Shelby didn't have a whole lot of hair and she had a beautiful toothless smile. She was also, unlike uh, Adelaide, kind of, uh, well, very bow-legged. But from the very beginning, I just thought she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. And it's true. So when she was very little, just, uh, I mean, still not able to say much more than a few words. Uh, she was dropped on her head. And it wasn't Nathan's fault. Nathan was carrying her because she was barefoot and the pavement was kind of hot and it was in the summer. And Shelby was a really squirmy baby. I'm glad Nathan dropped you and not me. Uh, but she was so squirmy. And, and so she squirmed and fell out of his arms and hit her head on the concrete. We didn't know how bad it was, but eventually we took her to the hospital. And I'll make a long story short. She had what was called an epidermal hematoma. There's the bleeding under the skull, between her skull and her brain. And it could have killed her. And if she survived, it could have left her permanently brain damaged. Now, we are grateful to God that that didn't happen. In fact, not only is she not brain damaged, but nobody in the family ever wants to play her in uh, Jeopardy because she's got the brain of a Vulcan supercomputer. It's, it's really bad. We don't, like to, we don't like to play games with Shelby at all. In fact... She's like the Rudolph of our family. We, we exclude her from all the Christmas time games. Uh, but that's another story. But she's not bitter. Uh, so she's fine. But I, but I do go back in that time because it was kind of like a, it was a traumatic moment in the life of her family. In fact, it was such a big deal. Uh, we, when the doctor said, yeah, this is, she's got an epidural hematoma. We got to rush her in right now. There's got to be surgery. She could be, she could die or get brain damage. And, and my wife, <laughs> Passed down. I mean, she has asthma, and so she had an attack. And so I had to admit my wife and daughter at the same time, which was, you know, it's crazy. But the Lord, the Lord is gracious. Shelby was fine. But I do, I do go back to that time, and I think, well, what if Shelby had been brain damaged? Uh, would we love her any less? Now, I'm not particularly special and the person who wrote this letter to Bristol isn't any one special because I think most every parent in this room understands this. If Shelby 
had not been okay. And she had gone the path of Bristol. I wouldn't love her any less. My wife would not love her any less. My son would not love her any less. And and you know that's how you would be toward your own kids or your grandkids. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that your love surpasses that of God? Who, Who do you think put that love in your heart? Do you see... Do you behold the love that he has lavished on us that we would be called the children of God? It starts with seeing that. It doesn't end there. That's that's not the end of it. There's more to do. But you cannot be passionate about the love of God if you're not beholding it yourself. And if in some respect or another, grace hasn't grabbed a hold of your life, and you're still thinking it's Jesus and this, or I have to somehow prove it or earn it or demonstrate my worth, then you're not seeing it. It's hard for those of us who are pretty good and high performers and all the rest. And so John reminds us, see it, behold it, recognize it. There's nothing that you've ever done And nothing you will ever do that would reduce the amount of love that your Father has for you. That's the starting point. Now there's more. There's a couple of other things when it comes to making our invisible God visible. And I'll just go through these rather quickly. Number two, our love needs to be characterized by taking initiative with others. And John hammers this home in so many different ways. This, This phrase comes up over and over again, actually. We love because he first loved us. God first loved us, and that's love. That is, he took the initiative. Even before we became Christians, even before we named the name of Jesus, even before we acknowledged him, even when we were running from him, even when we were still sinners, even when we hadn't gotten our life together, God still loved us. And and not only did he just love us, he took the initiative, and he came. If you're going to love in such a way that God is going to be visible, you take the initiative. This is why many of us, we've got our one and we're praying. And I hope that those of you who have someone for whom you're praying will continue to pray. Because you don't just let the game go to you, you bring it to them. And that's really complicated in in this time in which we live. And and I don't always know what the answer is for you with regards to what does that mean to take initiative with other people. But you know what taking initiative is and you know what taking not taking initiative is. You take the initiative. You don't wait. You knock on the door, and when the door is open, you go through it. And if there's a window, you go through it. You you look for the openings, and you take the openings. And if you don't have an opening, then you help create the opening. Love takes initiative. And then finally, our love needs to be characterized by making real sacrifices. There is a a tendency, and I don't know where this came from or how long it's been around, but there is a tendency for those who come to Jesus Christ to think it's salvation by free download. You know, just I'll, I'll receive Jesus and it's not going to be disruptive to my life and we're just going to move on. And that option is not available to you if you're a believer. Uh, I do say this from time to time and I'll say it again. Those people who are not here because of the COVID, praise God that you're still tuning in because it's not about what you receive. It's about what you give. And, and, and it's not ideal and some of us feel kind of inconvenienced. But we do the things that we do so as to express to God how we feel. We do the things we do to express to others how God feels about them. We don't just sit back and, and be entertained. 
There's been this movement among Christians for a long, long time, and it probably starts with the whole felt needs thing, and sometimes our felt needs are real needs, and sometimes felt needs are just felt needs. And I'm just telling you, what you need more than anything else is not entertainment. It's Jesus, and that's different. Jesus doesn't leave it open to us to just do what we feel like when we feel like it. There's sacrifice that's always involved. Here's how Christ puts it. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. Love is a matter of truth. And the truth of the matter is love requires action. It requires time. It requires sacrifice. It requires commitment. We're, we're not that excited about that, but it is the nature of love. It's like this pastor who was trying to get his church kind of motivated and says, you know, one of these days this church has got to get up and, and walk. And, and a deacon in the congregation said, well, let her walk, brother, let her walk. The pastor felt encouraged by this. And so he said, well, one of these days the church not only has to walk, it needs to run. And the same deacon, very encouraging, let her run, brother, let her run. He's really feeling it now. And he says, okay, one of these days, not only are we going to run, but we're going to fly. And the deacon stands up. And he says, let her fly, brothers. Let her fly. But then the pastor pauses for dramatic effect. That's how, that's how you do it. And he says, but if we're ever going to fly, it's going to require every single one of us to be committed and to give sacrificially. The deacon sat down and in a quiet voice said, let her walk, brother." Let her, let her walk. We, we don't naturally want to be sacrificial. But Jesus doesn't leave that open to us because Jesus lets us know that he set an example for us to follow and we have to follow that example so that Jesus would be appropriately made known because not only do people not see God, but people don't see Jesus except through our actions. Yes, he came and he lived and walked among us, but how do people now, 2,000 years later, get to know Jesus? It's by the followers living in step with the one that they claim to follow. Jesus put it like this. He says, I have set an example that you should do as I've done for you because that's how the world's going to see him once he's gone. You look at the many encounters of Jesus Christ and uh, again and again and again in the Bible, people refuse to follow based primarily on that. Uh, Jesus goes to the rich young ruler, give everything you have, give it to the poor, then follow me. The rich young ruler walks away. Eventually Judas walks away, and it's when Jesus says, I've washed your feet, so you've also got to wash others. Then he walks. Jesus says to the Pharisees, be merciful. And, and, and they walk. When it's all said and done, if we're actually going to make God visible and Jesus visible... It's going to require loving the way that God has loved us with purity and with a certain amount of consistency, but also with legitimate sacrifice. So my hope for you and, and my hope for me, this, if you feel a little convicted, okay, well, so do I. Uh, that's the way it works. I hope that in the year to follow, you'll figure out what do you need to do for your spiritual heart health and for the health of other people spiritually so that God will be well pleased. 
Because if you're doing what's going to make your heart healthy, and if you're doing what's going to help other people's hearts be healthy, and if you're doing this to please God, well, that's win, win, win. That's how you win. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like a little bit interested in starting this year over (laughs) and having a winning year. It's not complicated. This is how we do it. We love as God first loved us. Now, sometimes that means doing more. We have this, we have this thing that we sometimes say uh, or when, when we do something nice for somebody and they say, oh, thank you so much, and, and then somebody responds, that was the least I could do. You know, I really thought about doing something that was more appropriate, but I just thought this is the least that I could possibly do for you and get away with it and not have you get mad at me. You know, I... Or it was nothing. In other words, I didn't even try to be nice. It just kind of happened accidentally, but I'm glad that I was able to give you out of the overflow of my abundance in such a way that it didn't cost me anything. (laughs) Now I know, okay, now I know we're, we're, we're really trying, we try to be nice to people, and it's just a, it's just a phrase, okay? I'm not trying to pick on you, because I do the same thing. I don't want people to feel guilty for being, you know, sacrificial and all the rest or something like that. But the, the appropriate question is really, what more could I do? Not what's the least I could do. What's the least I could give? What's the least sacrifice that I could make? What's the, what, you know, what's the bare bottom minimum that I could do? And sometimes people actually come to Jesus like that. What's the minimal entrance requirement for getting into heaven when I die? And that's how they approach the kingdom. And that's not even a question that's in the Bible. What's the minimum that I can do and scrape in? What's the minimum I could do for other people and still be okay? What's the least I could do? Like that's a, I don't know what the answer is for everybody here. I don't, I don't even know. I'm still struggling to know, well, what's the answer for me in this next year? I don't know what the answer is for you. I don't always know what the answers are for me. But if you're thinking, what, how, how do I need to invest? How, how do I need to improve the spiritual health of my heart? How can I help other people around me? Here's the appropriate question. The appropriate question is not, what's the least I could do? A better question is, what more could I do? And sometimes it's not more. In some cases, sometimes it happens like, well, it's not going to... I had a conversation not too long ago. I won't give you all the details, but it's basically, it will not do for you to sacrifice your family on an altar of good intentions. Sometimes we can be guilt-driven, and sometimes we can be self-righteous-driven, and I'm not always saying that that's the case for everybody that does too much, but, but the best question is simply, what more can I do? Because when it came to Jesus, he, it wasn't, oh, what's the least I could do? Jesus... Jesus did all that he could do for you and for me. And we absolutely did not deserve it. This is why we look to the love of God. This is why we look to the cross. And that's why it kind of colors all the decisions that we make. And it doesn't have to be everything. It could just be a little something. God, Jesus took the little boy's couple of loaves and fishes. And it, it was all he had. It's all he could give. And it wasn't much, but God multiplied it. You don't have to save the whole world. You don't have to save your whole neighborhood. You don't have to do everything that you could possibly imagine. But if God is telling you to do more, well, then you do it. And when you do it, you win, others win, God wins. And that's what we want next year, isn't it? I didn't get an amen, so I'll just say, oh, wow, okay. Well, actually, I was going to say, is that enough? Are you all ready to quit? 
Amen. Okay, thank you. Let's let's bow forward in prayer. God, you're so good to us, and we say thank you. And uh, we want to be good to you in this year that comes. And, uh, and, and Lord, we know that we need to grow, and we know that you give us people to help us grow. And we are grateful uh, for the difficulties and the frustrations. And uh, probably every one of us in this room, to some degree or another, we're, we're high-maintenance ourselves. We, we need forgiveness, and we need grace, and we need uh, patience. And, and, Lord, what we require from others, we pray that we give it to other people. So we pray that, that, that we would embrace the, the community of which we're a part, the families of which we're a part, the people that you've brought into our lives, as difficult as sometimes they might be. Help us to embrace that for our own benefit, but not just for that, but for theirs too. And, 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 Lord, maybe there are not enough relationships in our life, and maybe we need to do a little bit more. Show us what that is. And we just pray that at the end of this next year, you will be well pleased with what we have given to you. And may it not be the least that we could do. I don't know what else to ask. I just pray that you would be glorified in all that we do as a reflection of your love, as a... In, in, in evidence of us having seen something, the purity and the vastness of your love expressed specifically through the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's